I'd like to read with you from Ephesians 3, as we prepare to look at the section of the Belgic Confession about the church, and what that summarizes concerning the teaching of Scripture. Ephesians 3, and this is a section in which Paul, uh, interestingly, is addressing a church that is quite a mixed bag. It's equal parts Jewish and Gentile. And so there were inherent divisions within the churches of Ephesus. But he has labored to show them in chapters 1 and 2 that Jew and Gentile alike have been called the same way. They were chosen. Those who are elect were chosen from before the foundation of the world. They're saved through Christ. They're entrusted with the Holy Spirit. They're joined together into one body by the grace of Christ, by the faith that we're given. There's a unity there. And that culminates in chapter 3. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen indeed. Now summarizing what we learned from that passage and many others, Article 27 speaks to us about the church. And says, we believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation of true Christian believers, all expecting their salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed in His blood, sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This church has been from the beginning of the world and will be to the end thereof, which is evident from this that Christ is an eternal King, which without subjects He cannot be. And this holy church is preserved or supported by God against the rage of the whole world. 
though it sometimes for a while appears, appears very small, and in the eyes of men to be reduced to nothing. As during the perilous reign of Ahab, the Lord reserved unto him 7,000 men who had not bowed their knees to Baal. Furthermore, this holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or to certain persons, but is spread and dispersed over the whole world, and yet is joined and united with heart and will by the power of faith in one and the same spirit. Amen. Beloved disciples of God through Christ, by faith we are joined to Jesus Christ, all who trust Him. And that means that in Christ, we are joined to one another. That's what the church is. It is the body of Christ. But what exactly do we mean by speaking of the church? How do we define that? How do we recognize it both here and in the world? Some have identified, have defined the church according to denomination. They say that this particular denomination, that's the church, everything else is, is a, an imposter, or at best, kind of a defiled half-brother. That's really the Roman Catholic position. But they're not the only ones. That same essential position has been held by various groups of Lutherans, Anglicans, Pentecostals, and Reformed. At the other extreme, there are those who define the church with no reference to a particular body or group. They view the church spiritually in terms of the faith of individuals who are united in theory but not in necessarily time and practice. By their definition, elders and deacons, roles of membership, formal worship, sacraments, these things are, are more circumstantial than essential. Both of those views are wrong. Both defining the church in terms of particular denominations and defining the church entirely spiritually. Both of those err, albeit in different directions. Because, not because I say so, but because neither view lines up with what we see in Scripture. The part of our confession that we begin today leads us to explore the church. What it is, what our role within it is, how we can recognize it, how it functions. Next week, we're going to look at the local church, the church that we encounter, the church to which we are to join ourselves. Then after that, we'll look at how we recognize the church. What are the marks of the true church? And what are the marks of the false church? After that, we'll get into some of the nuts and bolts of how the church is, is led, how the church is run, how the Lord uh, works through its office bearers and its order in order to nurture and care for His people. But but first we look at the church capital C, the, the church universal, the church Catholic. Because we need to understand that if we are to understand this. And what we see here, and what we confess in Article 27, is that the church is holy, eternal, and Catholic. That's what we're going to consider, that we confess the existence of a holy and eternal Catholic church. And as we examine what that means, the first thing we see is that it means that, that the church, the true church, is united by its faith in Christ the King. 
It's united by its faith in Christ the King. But first order of business, we need to define the word. What is church? Well, we do that, the confession does that, by considering what characterizes the church. It says that it is a holy congregation of true Christian believers. It's holy. That means it is set apart from that which is common. It's devoted to God and not to the world. It's uniquely prepared to serve God. That's what God said to Israel in Exodus 19. You shall be to me a holy people. He said the same thing to us in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. You are to be a holy people. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. We are holy. We're set apart unto the Lord as a congregation. The biblical words for church emphasize that. In the Old Testament, it was adah. It means a gathering. God has gathered His people. The New Testament word is ecclesia. It means there are people called out. So we're called out from the world and gathered together unto the Lord. And those who are thus called out and gathered together are Christian believers. That means that, as Ephesians 2 shows us, we recognize the sin and misery into which we were born. We trust in Christ to forgive our sin and relieve our misery. And we receive peace from God because of what Christ did. That's Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. And moving back to Ephesians 1, all of those who thus trust in Christ have received the Holy Spirit. He's the one who transforms our hearts so that we can trust in Christ. He's the one who works in our lives to reveal the first fruits of what we shall become. So that's, that's what characterizes those who belong to this holy congregation. And our confession says Christ is an eternal king, which without subjects he cannot be. The Christian faith changes the hearts of men. Though we were born into rebellion, right? Ephesians 2 says we were born dead in our sin. Christ transforms us, gives us life, makes us want to serve him, want to submit to him. That's an amazing thing. It doesn't happen all at once. It happens over time. But Jesus said in, in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And more and more, we learn to do that. We begin learning to do that with our parents, teaching us to obey them so that we'll, through that, learn how to obey God. As we grow older, we begin seeing that that's a wise thing, that's a good thing, that's a blessing to us. So that's what the church is. It's a people called together and made holy having faith in Christ who frees them from sin, gives them peace with God, who are beginning to learn how to submit to Christ as their king. But notice that when the Bible speaks of the church, it does so with three different nuances. It does so, first of all, when it talks of a particular gathering of people in a particular place. For instance, in Romans 16, verse 5, it speaks of Priscilla and Aquila and the church that gathers in their home. Right, So that's a particular congregation. In other places, like Acts 9, verse 31, it speaks of the church regional. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, says Acts 9. So that's speaking of the church within a whole region. But at other times... As we heard in Ephesians 3, it speaks of the church universal. 
The church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's not talking about the church in Ephesus or the church in a particular house in Ephesus. It's talking about the church in every place where it is gathered. Now they all use the same word there, ecclesia. But that same word can define the church universal right on down to the church that gathers in a particular home. And that's been true throughout the ages. That's the church today. That was the church in the age of the apostles. And that was the church in the age of Moses. That was the church in the age of Abraham. Our confession helpfully points out this church has been from the beginning of the world. Kids, have you ever thought of that? Sometimes we talk about the early church and we usually talk about it wrongly. When we talk about the early church, we're usually referring to the church in the age of the apostles. But that wasn't the early church. That was the church kind of in the middle of its life, according to today's age. Because the church really began when God gave the promise of Christ in Genesis 3.15. And then at the end of Genesis 3, He clothed Adam and Eve with garments of skin. That was the promise of Christ. And as they received that promise, the church was gathered. And then through the line of Seth, men began calling on the name of the Lord. That was the church. The church has taken different forms. It's taken different developments according to how God has revealed Himself, how He's called His people to to worship and to serve. But always it has been the self-same church, whether gathering together as a family in Abraham's time, or gathering at the tabernacle according to the ceremonial commands given through Moses, or gathering at the temple after the age of Solomon, or gathering in the synagogues that developed in the exile, or or gathering together in the homes of Ephesus, or later on in more formalized churches throughout the Middle Ages. It's always been the same church. The differences have been many, yes. But the church has always been united where it counts. What has united it? It's faith in Christ. The one whom God promised would redeem us from sin. The presence of the Holy Spirit, which to be sure was seen far more robustly after the age of Pentecost but who was still active before that to bring faith to the hearts of God's people. The church has always been united in being called out from among the common mass of sinful, rebellious mankind and being gathered together to worship God, to know God, to love and serve the Lord our God. Always the church has been united by faith in Christ the King. But that's not easy. Because during that whole time that the church has been united, we've had enemies striving to destroy the church. How has the church been preserved? How has the church maintained unity throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia? It's not an insignificant question. I mean, most human institutions undergo substantial transformation over the course of their life. Societies start out as family units that grow into villages and then to tribes and then into nations. 
economies go from subsistence that deals with just the individual and then begins into a morphing into a barter trade society and, and then ultimately into specialization and commerce. Human institutions and practices change over time. How has the church maintained such consistency in what it is? And how has it survived its enemies? I mean, think, children, think about the enemies that attack the church today. They're the same ones that attacked the church in the age of the apostles. The same ones that attacked the church in the age of David. Satan has been attacking God's people from the very start. For centuries, he sought to prevent the coming of the Savior. When that failed, he sought to attack and to scatter the people who served the Savior. Standing at his side is the world, the unbelieving world. The world, we talked about this in catechism this morning, the world hates the people of God. Why? Because we're shining a light that reflects Christ. And they're either going to be drawn to that, they're either going to want that because the Holy Spirit's at work in them, or they're going to be repulsed by it because it reminds them that they'll have to answer for embracing the darkness. So the world seeks to extinguish the light of the church. And then there's our old nature, the enemy within, who works hard to draw us back into our slavery to sin. Those enemies are powerful. And at times it seems like they've won. Our confession mentions Israel during the time of Ahab. King Ahab's wife Jezebel worked hard to utterly extinguish the true church. Elijah was convinced at one point that he was the only one left. But he wasn't. God had preserved Himself a remnant. Thousands of people who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. Same thing in the, the Middle Ages. During the Middle Ages, superstition almost extinguished the church. It looked from the outside like it had morphed into something that was not true. But still, true faith survived. Still, God maintained a remnant, which He then fanned. He took those coals that He had maintained and fanned them into a flame that burned bright during the age of the Reformation and brought about renewal. Throughout the years, many times, it seemed like the church has ebbed into almost nothing, but God always preserves it, always brings it back. Just like we read in Psalm 78. The people rebel, the people apostatize, but God always maintains that remnant that calls out upon Him and He rescues them and He restores them. Until a few generations later, Sometimes not even that much. They rebel again. They turn aside again. And they do so to their own destruction. But again, He preserves that remnant. He keeps them. He strengthens them. And that, my friends, is the key. He is the one who preserves us. If it was up to us, the church wouldn't survive two generations. And it's good that we remember that. We have been blessed in our tradition with some amazing theologians and preachers. I was privileged to serve a church in Iowa that had been served by some really amazing godly men. It was intimidating to me to stand in that council room and see the pictures of these men whose books sit on my shelves whose writings had taught me what it means to be not just a minister, but a Christian. And to think that they 
essentially stood in the same pulpit, preached to the same people. But the longer I served there, the more I heard the stories. They weren't perfect. Far from it. They had flaws, they had failures, they had faults, just like everyone else. If the church relied on those men to survive, it wouldn't last a moment. But we don't rely on those men to preserve us. We rely on the Lord, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. We rely on the Lord, who provides for us perfectly what we need. The end of Ephesians 2 talks about that. He is the one who provides for us the preaching of peace that drew us near. He is the one who gave us the Spirit who provides us access to the Father. He is the one who knit us together with the household of God. He is the one who built us on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ being the chief cornerstone. He is the one who's growing us into a temple in the Lord. A dwelling place for God. That's all His work. And what He has begun, He will complete. It's not up to us. We're just, we're just building blocks in this temple He's created. And if God is building it, God will preserve it. He's infinitely greater than Satan. Infinitely greater than the world. Infinitely greater than the, the darkness that still lurks within us. And praise the Lord that He is. Paul mentions in Ephesians 3 verse 13 how he was suffering for you. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Kids, you remember what Paul suffered for the sake of the churches? 2 Corinthians 11 expands on it. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was stoned, shipwrecked, slandered, accused, whipped, mistreated. Even bit by a snake. It was very little that Paul didn't experience in terms of persecution and pain and suffering for the sake of the church. And yet God always preserved Paul for the sake of the church that he, he served. And so He promises to preserve the church itself. Not that we will never suffer or struggle in this world. We will. Because this world is not our home and this world is not our friend. But nonetheless... Psalm 103 holds true. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant. God preserves us. He does it in a multitude of ways, but He does it perfectly. Revelation 20 talks about how in this age, Satan, who longs to destroy us, who once was able to lead astray all the nations but one, he has been restrained, bound for a thousand years during this age in which we live, so that he might no longer deceive the nations until this period is ended. So our enemy Satan has been restrained so that he can't destroy the church or overwhelm it. Likewise, Romans 13 tells us God establishes the civil authorities to restrain evil for the sake of the church. And Romans 6 tells us He restrains even our old nature. No longer are we bound as slaves to the flesh. We've been freed because we died to sin in our union with Christ. And now we live to righteousness. You see, in all things, God our Father works with sovereign power to uphold and preserve His church. 
And therefore, we never need to fear. Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what He desires. That's what He ordains. He has said, you will inherit My kingdom. You will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. You will know the fullness of glory. Now if God has promised it, who's going to overturn it? It's not going to happen. So even when it seems like the world is overcoming the church, even when it seems like the church is a mess, it is, huh? I mean, the church would be amazingly glorious if it wasn't for all these sinners. But the thing is, God's working to transform these sinners into saints. And if He's doing that work, no one can overcome it. Not Satan, not the world, not our old natures. We can't mess it up because God is doing this work within us, among us, through us. So we can be confident. We can praise God even, even when it seems like things are going haywire, even when it thing, seems like things are turned upside down. We can rejoice knowing that God will not allow His church, His beloved bride, to fail, to falter. But one final question remains for us to consider. We've hinted at it. We've touched around its edges. But we need to consider it straight on. How can this institution, this church, that is spread so widely throughout so many ages and cultures, how can it remain united? How can it remain one despite all of the cultures in which it has lived? That's a crucial question because culture is powerful and pervasive. When I'm talking about culture, I'm not talking about the kind of food we eat, the kind of clothes we wear. I'm talking about the worldview that pervades our society. The morality, the judgments that guide our leaders and the people they lead. That's something we're born into. It's filled with attitudes and assumptions that influence the way we perceive reality itself. How can the church exist in so very many different cultures and yet still be one? There are many who claim that it can't. They claim that the truths expressed and the commands given in Scripture are products of their culture. By the way, that was a big part of how the, the group of churches from which many of our churches came out justified ignoring clear commands of Scripture. They said those, those commands, those instructions are so culturally bound that we have to, we have to really reevaluate all of them and figure out what parts of what is written there were reflections of the culture and what the underlying principles are. And so we can, we can hold on to those underlying principles without necessarily the form of what it actually says. And so when it says women shouldn't be leaders, no, that was just a cultural prerogative. That's no longer applicable. And when it talks about sexual morality, well, that was a sexual morality of a culture 2,000 or 4,000 years old. That no longer adheres to us. And so they sat in judgment over the Bible. But you see, that's a very small view of God or a very small view of His Word. The one who has gathered us is the one who wrote this Word. 
And it changes no more than he does. It is outside of culture, beyond culture, over culture. We do not have the right to sit in judgment over it, but rather, as Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, it is a sword that pierces into the midst of us. It sits in judgment on us. It determines, decrees what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false. We don't have the right to say, yes, this is true, this is lasting, but not too much this. No, we don't have the right to do that. Instead, we have to submit to the word of our King. And because we're submitting to the unchanging word of the unchanging King, that is what unites the church. That is what makes the church one. It's universal. By the working of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the people and and in the word by which He transforms us. When Jesus was about to go to heaven, He gave His disciples a command. Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When He gave that command, His purpose was what we read in Ephesians 3 verse 6. To make for himself one body, one church. As they received the gospel, verse 16, they would be strengthened with power through his spirit. And in this way, verses 18 and 19, they would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. By means of His Word, by the working of His Spirit, in every age, God gathers His people into this one unified body through whom they are saved, with whom they are built, among whom the Holy Spirit lives. We could not do that. Men could not do that. They couldn't maintain the consistency. They couldn't maintain the same standard. But God is the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. And therefore it is because of the Holy Spirit's sovereign work that we can confess there is one church. That's what we mean, kids. That's what we mean when we say the church is Catholic. It is one. It is universal. In every age, in every place where it is gathered, it is one church. Its members, verse 6, are fellow heirs. Members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus. Never has there been a time when the church was not, never has there been a land where the church was not. And yet, despite the incredible variety of the people gathered in, Ephesians 4 says, there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The Savior by whom the saints are delivered is one Savior, Jesus Christ. The body to which He joins His people is one body, the same church. Because it is by the work of the one Spirit. Folks, consider what that means for us. Consider what it means for our evangelism and missions. It means that it's not up to us to build the kingdom. We're instruments. We're called to shine the light. We're called to give an answer for the the hope within us, or a reason for the hope within us. 
But it's God who has to reach out and soften their heart. It's God who has to impart faith in the hearts of His elect. It's God who has to bring them in and knit them together with the, the rest of the church, making them to be part of that living temple. That's the work of God. We're just, as we obey His commands, we're just instruments in His hand. It also means that we don't have to try to figure out how to gather. That's the whole church growth movement, isn't it? Well, what do the people want? We've got to figure out how to meet their felt needs. We've got to figure out how to get them into the pews, and we've got to figure out how to keep them there. And so they try to imitate the ways of the world, which, by the way, we don't do well, because the world will always do the world better than the church does. But we don't have to do that. When we sent a missionary to Ecuador, when Bethany sent a missionary to Costa Rica, they didn't have to come up with... What kind of gospel do we have to send into these? No. Those people are just dealing with the same sins that we are. The same alienation from God that we are. Which means they need the same Savior we need. They need the same message we need. They need prayer that the Holy Spirit would come upon them just as He has come upon us. The method by which we do missions in Ecuador is the same as the means by which we do missions in India is the same as the means by which we do missions in Ukraine. And the church that is built in all of those places ends up being the same. Might there be slight differences? Yeah, sure. They'll wear different kinds of clothes. They'll speak in a different language. But they will worship the same God according to the same commands unto the same glory. Are there differences among the churches? Absolutely. And some of those differences reflect unfaithfulness, error. You walk into an uh, Anglican worship service, it's going to look much different than a Lutheran worship service, which is going to look much different than one of our worship services. That means somebody's wrong. Right? So we have to be humble about that. But, we're confessing the same Christ. We're trusting the same promises. We're inhabited by the same Spirit, which means we are the same church. And we can rejoice to know that they are our brothers and sisters insofar as they are serving the same Lord through the same Gospel. Should we seek closer unity with them? Insofar as we're able. I know I don't want to step on Steve's toes. I know that you guys were talking about that today. I thought that was rather providential. Uh, but... We do need to recognize our unity with them. In some ways, it's a no-brainer that we work alongside of them. When it comes to bringing the gospel into the community, when it comes to revealing the love of Christ through food shelves, through pro-life work, no-brainer. Of course we can work alongside of our brothers in Christ. We're one in Christ. Now, should we worship together when we have so many differences? Well, that's going to take a while. We're going to have to work through those differences. Figure out who's closer to the commands of Scripture. But certainly we should get to know them as siblings, as brothers and sisters in the Lord. The point to all this, brothers and sisters, it's one church. When we get to heaven, we're not going to find that there's only URC people and eh, maybe a few Canadian Reformed and RCUS guys. No. We're going to find that the church is beautiful in its manifold unity. Because even though they come 
Think of Revelation 7. Even though they come from many nations, tribes, and languages, even though they are drawn from every age in which mankind has lived, they're one. They serve one God through one Gospel, through one Savior, inhabited by one Holy Spirit. Preserved against the rage of Satan and the world and the flesh. Reliant entirely on our sovereign God. And all to the end. That we might bring to Him glory in the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever. May the Lord cause us to delight in being part of His universal church. And may He use us to multiply, to magnify that glory in the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have gathered us as Your people. We pray that You would cause us to delight in the church and to have a passion for knowing and loving our brothers in the Lord. And we pray, Father, that You would continue to knit together and refine and strengthen and protect Your beloved church. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, let's confess that